Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for Jews, Judaism, and Anti-Judaism in the Gospel of John with Dr. Adele Reinhartz. And thank you to our great partners at BMHBJ in Colorado for co-sponsoring today's event. I'd love to pass it over to Rabbi Chetovsky to introduce today's guest speaker. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Reinhartz. Um, Dr. Reinhartz uh, is a distinguished university professor at the University of Ottawa. And she's a professor in the Department of Classics and Religious Studies. Her main areas of concentration and academic work are in the study of ancient Judaism and Christianity and the Bible and film and the Bible in film. She has been the general editor of the Journal of Biblical Literature and served as the president of the Society of Biblical Literature uh, since 19, uh, in 1920. Uh, she's a member of the Royal Society of Canada, and, so, um, and, and I, I'm just misreading. My glasses are terrible today. And into the American Academy of Jewish Research uh, since 1914. Her most recent books are Cast Out of the Covenant, Jews and Anti-Judaism in the Gospel of John, that the topic of today's uh, conversation, and The Bible and Cinema, an Introduction. She's working on a project on the so-called parting of the ways and the origins of Christianity. You know, this is a topic that based on numbers, I think we're all interested in. I particularly am, and it's a pleasure to ask you to give your attention to our distinguished guest, Dr. Adele Reinhardt. Thank you very much. Just one small correction. I was president of the Society of Biblical Literature in 2020, not 1920. I, if it were 1920, um, you know, you could have commented on how well uh, preserved I am for somebody <laughs> uh, of my uh, vintage. Um, uh, thank you very much for that introduction. Before we begin, I thought uh, it might be worthwhile giving just a short, um, a few short words of introduction uh, to the Gospel of John. I already know just from looking at the faces on the screen that some of you don't need this introduction, um, but perhaps some of you do. So I'll just say a few a few things that might be help you to situate this uh, this talk in a broader context. So we have uh, quite a few ancient sources pertaining to the Jesus movement and early Christianity, and among them are many texts that are called Gospels, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Nicodemus, and quite a few others. Uh, and these are among the many texts that circulated in the ancient Mediterranean world. Four of these Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, made it into the New Testament and thereby became authoritative and foundational for Christianity. The Gospel of John is known as the fourth gospel in light of its placement in the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And like the other three gospels, which are known collectively as the synoptic gospels, the fourth gospel, as we know it today, was probably the product of a process of both oral and written transmission, uh, perhaps also multiple redactions. We don't really know exactly when it was written, uh, but most scholars, um, you know, the general view is that it was finalized later than the other three. So perhaps it was fourth in terms of chronology as well. And probably sometime between uh, the late first century, the end of the first century, around 85. And this is because it looks back on the destruction of the temple, which happened in the year 70. Um, sometime between 85 then and the early second century, um, when, um, when it was first cited or alluded to in other sources. So like the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospel of John tells a version of Jesus' life story. Some aspects of the story are similar to those we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some of the incidents are, are repeated, such as, um, uh, Jesus feeding the multitudes or walking on water. 
But John also has some unique features, such as the story of the raising of Lazarus in uh, chapter 11, in which Jesus raises um, a friend named Lazarus from the dead. Um, unlike the synoptics, in which Jesus speaks in parables, in John, he gives really long speeches, sometimes, um, in one case anyway, uh, several chapters long. The Gospel of John has generally not been considered a reliable source of information about the historical figure of Jesus, but some scholars are now rethinking that position. John seems to know certain things, for example, about uh, Jerusalem that have been confirmed by um, archaeological finds. My own view is that John may be right about some things, but that most of the speeches and perhaps also some of the events are fabrications that were intended to convey theology rather than um, historical facts. And so for this talk, when I say Jesus says or Jesus does, I'm not referring to the historical figure of Jesus, but I'm referring to Jesus as the main character of the gospel. So that's just a few words of introduction. Um, you may have questions about other aspects of John, uh, which we can get to in the in Q&A. But now I'm going to turn to the portrayal of, of Jesus as a Jew in the Gospel of John. So nowadays, we all know that historically speaking, Jesus, his family, and his disciples were Jewish. This uh, should have been known all along, actually. The Gospels are hardly um, silent on this matter. But um, the Jewishness of Jesus has come to the fore um, only in the last, I don't know, uh, 70 or 80 years as, as historical fact. The Gospel of John does not emphasize the Jewishness of Jesus, but it also does not hide or ignore it. The story is explicitly set in Galilee, Judea, and Samaria during the period between 18 and 26 or so, the common era that Pontius Pilate was the representative of Rome and Caiaphas was the high priest. The gospel refers to several Jewish practices that were common at the time and are still done today. For example, the story of the wedding at Cana, which is the story in which Jesus turned water into wine, has a reference to uh, ritual handwashing, nitilat yadayim, when it says that um, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, and that's the water that Jesus turned into wine. And actually, this is, to my knowledge, the earliest reference to the practice of nitilat yadayim, or ritual handwashing, uh, some five centuries or so before the rabbinic passage that uh, talks about it. Um, another example has to do with the, in this, uh, comes up in the story, the feeding of the multitudes. So that's the story in which Jesus takes some uh, fish and some bread and manages to feed uh, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, but we're told in 611 that when he took the low, when he took the loaves, he gave thanks and then and then gave them out. And this is a reference um, to the blessing over the bread that is done traditionally by uh, um, before eating a meal. Um, and so it seems that Jesus, as portrayed by John, uh, engaged in that practice as well. Other references to Jewish practices, we know that Jesus celebrated, uh, John's Jesus celebrated uh, Shabbat, the Sabbath, as well as the festivals. We have references to Pesach, Passover, uh, Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, and also Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. Jesus' regular participation in these activities confirms his own Jewish identity, even when his practices don't conform to the norms and expectations of other Jews, uh, as, for example, when he heals a disabled man and a blind man on the Sabbath. This is in chapters 5 and 9 of the Gospel. The Gospel writer also draws extensively on Jewish ideas and Jewish sources. Uh, for example, here, this is uh, the beginning of um, the prologue to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
he was in the beginning with God, uh, enigmatic verses. But the next verse, all things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. This uses language uh, uh, from the Jewish wisdom tradition. So, for example, we have in Proverbs, uh, this is wisdom speaking here. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. So this expresses similar ideas to what we see at the beginning of the Gospel of John with um, uh, the idea that Jesus or the word here existed before the world, the rest of the world was created or the world was created. And then um, in verse 30 here in Proverbs, uh, wisdom says, I was beside him like a master worker and I was daily his delight rejoicing before him always, implies the role of wisdom in the act of uh, creation of the world, which is what we have in the prologue to the gospel of John as well. And then later on in the prologue, the prologue uh, refers to the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. We have this famous verse, and the word became flesh and lived among us, which has a parallel in the wisdom of Ben Sira. Um, and um, especially here in verse uh, eight, when the creator of all things gave me a command and said, make your dwelling in Jacob, and in Israel receive your inheritance. And in other passages as well, from later literature, uh, from rabbinic literature in particular, we have references to the Shekhinah, God's presence, um, and that also has a connection to uh, the language of the prologue. And so uh, from this we know that uh, there were a lot of, um, that John made use of um, Jewish, um, ideas, perhaps with knowledge of these Jewish sources as well. We don't know for sure. Uh, but in any case, he seems to be operating within a, the world of Jewish ideas. Um, and uh, let me just uh, uh, mention a couple of other examples. There's also the um, conversation that Jesus has in chapter four with the Samaritan woman when he tells her, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is a very difficult passage to interpret. It seems straightforward, but actually um, taken in the context of the gospel as a whole, um, there are lots of different interpretations here. But these and many other examples from the gospel confirm and reinforce the idea that Jesus was Jewish uh, and also that he operated within a Jewish environment and that just about everybody else with whom he interacted, with the exception of the Samaritan woman and some Gentiles, which we'll talk about later, um, everybody else was Jewish. And so the question then arises, why can't, how can we even talk about anti-Judaism in this gospel if the context is so thoroughly Jewish? Well, the reason is that alongside all of the passages that I just mentioned and many more, the gospel also has a large number of verses that present Jews in a highly negative light. And that's what we will turn to now. These negative verses cluster around three main themes. The first is, the assertion that by refusing to believe in Jesus, Jews have forfeited their covenantal relationship with God. The second theme concerns the Jewish responsibility for Jesus' death. And the third is the identification of Jews as the children of Satan. So these are three elements of John's gospel that um, are, uh, can be, and often are, certainly uh, by me, <laughs> uh, interpreted as evidence of anti-Judaism, in the sense that reading them um, would likely create a negative view of Jews uh, for 
the people reading or listening to this gospel. So I want to just illustrate each of these three points from passages in the gospel. So the first point was that uh, by refusing to believe in Jesus, Jews have forfeited their relationship with God. We'll look at two examples of passages that convey this idea. In John chapter 2, the gospel narrates a scene that is called um, uh, the cleansing of the temple. Or as some scholars put it, Jesus' temple tantrum, which I kind of like. In the Synoptic Gospels, the scene comes towards the end of Jesus' ministry, and it's used to explain why the Jewish and Roman authorities had it in for Jesus. So it's used as a way of, of kind of leading into the story of Jesus' um, betrayal, arrest, trial, and execution. Now, the Gospel of John knows this story but places it early in the gospel at the beginning of Jesus' ministry instead of at the end. And so here's the story as we find it in the gospel of John. Uh, in the temple, Jesus found people, this is at the Passover, of course, found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, making a whip of cords. He drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the cattle. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. So here, Jesus is claiming the temple as his father's house. And in that way, he is asserting his authority over the temple um, as God's son, agent, and representative in the world. So what he's doing is he's... Uh, these are traditional activities that took place uh, in the temple at the time of the pilgrimage festivals. The pilgrimage festivals were the festivals of Sukkot, um, uh, uh, Pesach, and Shavuot. Um, when people came from all over Judea and, and the Galilee and um, often even from the diaspora to come and make sacrifices at the temple. So the cattle, sheep, and doves were there. Uh, to be uh, bought for as sacrificial animals. Um, Jerusalem also had its own currency, so that's why the money changers were there. So these were legitimate activities in the temple, but Jesus is here telling them, actually, these are not legitimate. These are making a marketplace out of my father's house. And so he's asserting his authority um, over against the authority of the priests and Levites and others who were in charge of the temple cult. So a second, uh, a, a few chapters later, he does, he makes a similar move with respect to the scriptures. And he says to the Jews, whoever they are, the ones that are listening to him at this point, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Don't think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. If you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? So this is uh, based on the idea, uh, the belief that we find um, in the earliest texts of the New Testament and throughout um, uh, the idea that Jesus was foretold, Jesus' coming was foretold and kind of embedded in the Hebrew Bible, in the Torah, especially in the Torah and in the prophetic literature. So Jews who did not read their scriptures as being fulfilled in Jesus are misreading their scriptures according to this passage. And so in the, in the uh, temple scene, Jews no longer have authority over the temple because the temple is God's house and Jesus has authority over it as God's son. And in this passage, Jews have forfeited uh, or misread their own scriptures, um, which is the basis of the Jewish covenantal relationship with God because they don't interpret the scriptures uh, Christologically. The latter theme is developed in many other passages in the gospel. 
Uh, for example, belief in Jesus is seen as evidence of faith in God. The one who sees Jesus also sees God. But the Jews, on the other hand, do not believe and do not see God because they do not believe in Jesus as the Christ and Son of God. And so we have that illustrated, um, that's the theme of several passages in the gospel, and here's just um, one of them in chapter 9, um, when Jesus says, I came into this world for judgment so that those who don't see may see, and those who do see may become blind. The Pharisees say, surely we're not blind. Jesus says, well, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. So the Pharisees are held up as an example of those who claim to see, but actually don't see because they don't understand who Jesus really is. And then um, accepting Jesus demonstrates a love for God, for Jesus, and for fellow believers, uh, but rejecting Jesus is tantamount to hating God. And so that's what we have here uh, in 1524. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sin. In other words, they wouldn't have been able to see. Um, but now that they have seen and, uh, and hate, but now that they have seen, they have hated both me and my father. In, the, in these passages, what we have here is the idea that Jews have relinquished their relationship with God because of their failure to believe. The second theme has to do with the Jewish responsibility for Jesus' death. This is a theme that we find not only in the Gospel of John, of course, but to one extent or another in all of the Gospels. Uh, perhaps the most egregious form of this accusation comes in the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 27, 25, this is the uh, trial scene before Pilate, um, when Pilate uh, wants to uh, let Jesus go, the Jews call for his crucifixion, uh, Pilate then uh, washes his hands, literally, of responsibility, and the Jews say, his blood be on us and on our children. So this is a passage that has had a very long and uh, uh, difficult history in Jewish-Christian um, relations um, and uh, was not really addressed uh, until, uh, at least in the Catholic Church, until 1965 with Vatican II, uh, which included a document called Nostra Aetate, in which the Church explicitly uh, withdrew the idea that Jews for all generations were guilty of Jesus' death. But the Gospel of John has also contributed to this trope. And we have an example right here. There are several examples actually throughout the Gospel of references to the Jewish desire to kill Jesus. And so here we have in chapter five, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath in healing a disabled man on the Sabbath, but also because he called God his own father thereby making himself equal to God. So uh, again, we don't really know what this means in terms of making himself equal to God. That's a pretty uh, intricate uh, theological question. But what I want to draw your attention to here is John's reference to the Jews' desire to kill Jesus all the more, as if they were already um, engaged in that kind of uh, activity. We have it again in chapter 7, 8, and 10, when they tried to arrest Jesus, but no one laid hands on him. This is when Jesus is in Jerusalem for Sukkot. Uh, chapter 8, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid and went out of the temple. And then in chapter 10, this is during the festival of Hanukkah, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Then we have in chapter 11, at the end of the story, after the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, there is um, a reference to many Jews who were believing in Jesus. And then a meeting of the council, which perhaps was the Sanhedrin, uh, we don't know uh, for sure, uh, where they were pondering, what are they going to do? If, if we let him go on like this, 
everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. So this is obviously a reference to the destruction of the temple. One of the reasons that people uh, date the Gospel of John to a period sometime after 70, because this seems like such a clear reference to that event. But then Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said to them, you know nothing at all. You don't understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. And so here the uh, concern seems to be the popularity that Jesus is gaining um, and that for the good of the nation, he needs to be um, neutralized, a term I learned from, you know, spy movies and spy novels and, uh, and so on. But here the crucial thing is that from that day on, they planned to put him to death. But it's interesting to note that it wasn't really here. There's nothing articulated about his claims to be the Messiah or anything like that. It really is a political motivation um, that is expressed in this passage. And then again, uh, we have in the uh, story of the uh, trial it, uh, where the Jews say to Pilate, who's inclined to let Jesus go, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against Caesar. So, um, and then they call it for his crucifixion. Uh, Pilate says to the Jews, here is your king, and they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. And then he hands them over to be crucified. So throughout the gospel, uh, from the very beginning, we have this constant theme of the Jews as um, being made uneasy by Jesus and seeking to kill him. And what's interesting here is that we don't know whether these were, if, if we try to think about this historically, um, or realistically, are these all Jews that are trying to kill him? What about the Jews who are following him? What about those who are sympathetic to his message? Um, it seems in general that the Jews being talked about are Jewish authorities that were concerned about the bigger picture, as we saw at the end of chapter 11. But what is crucial here, in my opinion, is that the term Jew is used for all of those people. In other words, for all of the people engaged in persecuting Jesus, we don't have, uh, for the most part, specific terms like Pharisees or Jewish authorities or priests or anything like that. We have the term Jews, the Greek term eudaioi. And so even though if you think about um, which Jews might have been implicated in each passage, the fact that you have the general term eudaios used for all of them ends up creating the impression that it's all Jews who are responsible for Jesus, uh, for Jesus' death. So now we turn to the third theme, which uh, is uh, the identification of Jews as the children of Satan, which in my view is the most damaging passage in this gospel. This is in chapter eight. This is in the context of a long kind of discussion between Jesus and Jews, a group of Jews. We don't know exactly who they who they were. Um, it would seem that they were Jews who had believed in Jesus and then and then uh, changed their minds. Um, but the way that Jesus' language is formulated throughout implies that he's talking about all Jews. So uh, we'll just take a look at this passage. Um, if God were your father, this is after Jews claim to be children of God. And Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and now I am here. I didn't come on my own, but God sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot accept my word. And then here is the accusation. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Uh, when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So this is a very uh, difficult and problematic 
uh, passage. Uh, and I think that what underlies it, or the, the, the reasoning that underlies this, stems from Aristotle's theory of epigenesis. Um, and this is Aristotle's theory of uh, how babies are made, of reproduction. In this theory, uh, he assigned specific roles to the male and female in the process of reproduction. And he was particularly concerned with the role of the father, which he considered to be uh, the most important role. The, the woman gay provided the medium in which a child would grow, but it was the father who provided all of the characteristics, both physical and psychological, that the child um, would have. So nowadays, of course, we test the paternity of a child by DNA. In ancient times, uh, they did not have that capacity, and they really didn't have an accurate understanding of, uh, of the process of uh, conception of re reproduction. The Gospel of John, in the prologue that we've already looked at briefly, the Gospel of John asserts that Jesus is God's son because Jesus resembles God in all the ways that matter. And so, and um, you know, I, I've written about this. I won't go into it now in detail, but you have uh, the language in the prologue, the Greek of the prologue, uses language very similar, uh, in some cases identical, to the language that Aristotle uses in his treatise on the generation of animals. So um, it would seem uh, that... Uh, John is making use of this theory to argue that Jesus is truly God's son in a biological sense. And in the same way, he's using this theory to argue that Jews are children of the devil. So because they didn't have DNA, there was no way to actually determine uh, paternity. Um, Aristotle argued that you could determine paternity by the characteristics of the child. Um, and so by demonstrating God's uh, knowledge and um, God's agency, Jesus shows himself to be God's son. And from John's point of view, the Jews, by seeking to kill Jesus, demonstrate that they are the Satan's children, because they have the same characteristics here as murderers and as liars as their father does. So I think that this is what's going on in this passage. Um, that's not my attempt to explain it away. It's, um, as, I, as I've already mentioned, this, this passage uh, has um, done extreme, <laughs> a lot of damage in Jewish-Christian relations and a lot of damage to Jews over the millennia. So I'm not trying to, to um, disarm it or make it less uh, dangerous. I'm just trying to explain what's behind it as far as the Gospel of John is concerned. Of course, you have this reflected, for example, in Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, um, uh, in the description of Shylock. Uh, you also have it in countless examples of uh, art from the Middle Ages into the modern period. And uh, you can find it on just about every single neo-Nazi and white supremacist website uh, to this very day. So the question is, we have these hostile and negative passages in the Gospel of John. Does that mean that the Gospel of John is anti-Jewish? Well, some people say the Gospel of John can't be anti-Jewish because it has so many Jewish elements. Um, and so, according to them, we need to look to the historical background of the Gospel of John, the circumstances in which it was written, in order to explain why we have so many hostile statements in a Gospel that otherwise seems so Jewish. So there's a particular theory that has been, uh, that was proposed in in uh, uh, the late 1960s by uh, a truly superb scholar called um, uh, J.L. Martin, M-A-R-T-Y-N, who taught at Union Theological uh, Seminary. And he argued that the gospel writer was a member or perhaps the leader of a Jewish community of 
Christ believers. It's anachronistic to call them Christians, although many people do. Um, so he was the head of this community of Jews who believed in Jesus. These Jews continued to go to the synagogue. But once it was uh, discovered that they were Jesus believers, they were kicked out of the synagogue and also from the Jewish community. This theory is based on three passages that use um, a Greek, an unusual Greek term called uh, aposynagogos, meaning literally one who is outside the synagogue. Um, the most detailed kind of um, passage about this is in chapter nine. Again, the story of the blind man who was healed. Um, the Pharisees uh, did an investigation as to how he came to be healed and asked his parents um, whether he was blind and now he sees. And they decide not to answer. They dodge the question and they say, ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. Uh, I'm always puzzled at this, you know, because usually Jewish parents try to protect their children. But here they are, you know, trying to... Um, uh, you know, put the onus on him. And the narrator explains that this was because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Uh, there are two other passages that use the same term. Uh, one is in chapter 12. Uh, many of the authorities believed in him, but they didn't confess it because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. And then the third example is in this very long discourse called the Farewell Discourses, uh, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and warns them that they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they're offering worship to God. Now, I always want to make it clear here that Jesus didn't actually say these words, nor did he call Jews, children of the devil. These, all of this is scripted for Jesus or, you know, whatever character is speaking here um, by the gospel, uh, by the gospel writer. It's also not feasible that expulsion from the synagogue for being a Christ believer would have happened in, uh, at the time of Jesus. And so Lou Martin argued that in telling the story of Jesus, uh, the Gospel of John at the same time is telling the story of a community that had experienced this expulsion from the synagogue. And he took as evidence a passage from uh, the Talmud, from the tractate of Brachot 28b, which I'm not going to read in any detail, but this is in the context of um, discussion in the Talmud of the different um, brachot or the different uh, blessings that are going to go into the Amida, the central Jewish, uh, the, the uh, cornerstone of um, the Jewish um, communal prayer services. Um, and one of these was called Birkat Haminim, which literally means benediction of the heretics or blessing of the heretics. But of course here, blessing is a euphemism or curse. So in this passage, the Birkat uh, the curse on the heretics, is associated with this uh, rabbi uh, Shmuel HaKatan, Samuel the Small, and it's um, ostensibly set at a, in a conversation or a discussion that took place towards the end of the first century. Now we have quite a few versions of the text of this curse. And this is a version that appears in the Geniza. For those doomed to destruction, may there be no hope. May the dominion of arrogance be quickly uprooted in our day. And may the Nazarenes and the heretics be destroyed in a moment. So this is seen as an anti-Christian curse uh, uh, by Lou Martin and, and others. And so on that basis, uh, Lou Martin argued that we have here external evidence for the expulsion of Jewish Christians from uh, the synagogue and from the Jewish community. Now, I have spilled a lot of ink over the past 25 years, I would say since the late 90s, to argue against this theory, to argue 
against the historicity of this hypothesis. Um, and first of all, there is no uh, external evidence at all for the existence of a Johannine community at the time the gospel was written. This is one of our problems with gospel interpretation in general, is that we have all, almost no external evidence for anything that is written there. And so if we want to say something about the history of composition or who the audience was or who the author was, we end up in a circular process where we try to drive, we look for clues in the gospel, and then we use those clues to interpret the gospel itself. Another point, uh, first, so we have no external evidence for this. Furthermore, from everything else that we know about Judaism at this time, it seems unlikely that people would have been kicked out of the synagogue for believing Jesus is the Messiah. And the evidence for this is uh, Bar Kokhba. Nowadays, of course, we see belief in Jesus as the point of differentiation between Jews and Christians. But in the first and second century, that was really uh, not the case. And the evidence that we have is that Bar Kokhba, who led a revolt in 132 of the Common Era, was called the Messiah by the very uh, venerable Rabbi Akiva. Akiva was uh, not expelled from the synagogue, and neither were other followers of, uh, of Bar Kokhba. And there are many other uh, issues here with respect to the theory itself. And most people now do not associate Birkat Aminim with this particular passage. So what I've argued is that this hypothesis becomes an elaborate way to explain away the Jews' gospels, uh, uh, the gospels' anti-Judaism. If the hostile statements in the gospel were a response to an act perpetrated by the synagogue, then the gospel writer can hardly be to blame. But even if the hypothesis would be historical, which I don't believe it is, it lets the gospel of John off a bit too easily. As I've already mentioned, the gospel as well as Matthew and um, uh, Paul's letters to the Galatians and the Romans have been used for millennia to justify anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic speech and actions, even though I would also argue that that was not the intended um, uh, consequence of these ancient writers. I'm just going to conclude now so we have a few uh, questions. Uh, of a bit of time for questions. So I just want to you know, raise the question then about how we should respond to the gospel's anti-Judaism. Now for Jews, this is not a burning question. The gospels are not part of the Jewish sacred scriptures. They don't carry any authoritative weight. Most Jews don't believe Jesus to be the Messiah. And most go through life quite happily without ever reading the Gospel of John or any other part of the New Testament. But for Christians, I think the Gospel's anti-Judaism poses a real problem. The expulsion hypothesis that I've just mentioned appeals to many Christians precisely because it explains John's anti-Judaism in a way that is non-threatening. It avoids the dilemma posed by sacred text that at the same time expresses hatred towards the ethnic and religious group from which its faith historically stemmed. Many Christians that I know walk a fine line between accepting the Gospel of John as sacred without at the same time either ignoring or adopting the anti-Jewish sentiments that the Gospel expresses. So um, I think, you know, Jews were also used to, uh, to um, uh, accepting certain parts of our scriptures as more uh, compelling than other parts of our scriptures. So the question of how to uphold the sanctity of a text while rejecting some of its propositions is not unique to Christians. And in fact, this challenge is posed by all texts and all traditions. And for Jews, it arises most acutely with regard to the Hebrew Bible and other authoritative Jewish texts uh, for example, on attitudes towards outsiders, uh, the roles of women, and questions of sexual pre uh, preference. So whether we're Jewish, Christian, or neither, we are called upon to be thoughtful about our sacred stories 
to engage with them seriously in a way that gives them honor, but also that does not shirk from the difficult questions that they may pose. Thank you so much, Dr. Reinhardt. Um, we would love to open it up to questions or comments. Um, please feel free to either raise your hands and we can call on people and you can unmute or feel free to write questions in the chat as well. Hi, uh, Stefan. Yes, uh, great job, um, Dr. Reinhardt. Sorry, very, very good job there. I just had a question on, uh, is there any um, studies or, or, or historical background on the, the differentiation between the Jew, Jewish concept of Hasatan and the Christian concept of the devil and kind of how that plays into John and, and, and that sort of thing? Uh, that's an interesting question. I am not familiar with studies um, that look exactly at that point. I mean, within a Jewish context, um, the meaning of uh, Satan changed over time. If uh, you look at the biblical passage, such as the story of uh, Bilam and, the, and, the book of, and also in the book of Job, you have Satan as kind of a tempter, uh, not as an evil figure necessarily. Um, and uh, in the uh, synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you also have uh, Satan as a tempter. Um, but by the time we get to the Second Temple period, there were all there was already a negative connotation to Satan. And in some worldviews uh, at, uh, at that time, you have the idea that um, that the Satan, Satan, was a uh, exerted a kind of a negative power in the world that um, was in opposition to the divine. And I think John is tapping into that. So, um, you know, as with the idea of, of, um, of the Messiah and many other ideas, you had a multiplicity of views in the first century. And, uh, but I think that John is here tapping into a kind of a dualistic worldview where you have God and Satan, uh, the power of good and the power of evil as being in a sort of um, cosmic a conflict with one another. And so in defining the Jews as children of Satan, John is placing them on one side of that conflict over against the divine. Thank you. Uh, I saw Stuart next. Dr. Reinhardt, how would you translate IUDOA in John Avon elsewhere? Would you define it uh, more broadly as Jews or more narrowly as Judeans? All right. This is a question that has been uh much discussed in the in the field, I translate it as Jews. There are others who argue that we should translate it as Judeans, as a way of um, also perhaps uh, softening the anti-Judaism of the text, as it seems to uh, you know strike us when we just hear Jew, Jew, Jew all the time. Yeah. But I think it is more accurate to uh, refer to them as as Jews. The term Judean in English in my view, uh, has a very specific meaning as people who come from Judea. But already in this period, of course, uh, there were many people who may trace their origins back to Judea or the land, or the land of Israel more broadly, but who lived in other places. Um, and the term Eudaios had already taken on a broader meaning, um, referring to what we would now call Jews. So I do believe that that I've argued, um, and I think that still remains the consensus opinion that um, that we should translate Eudaios as Jew. Thank you. Um, I saw Stephen next. Thank you, Dr. Reinhardt. I'm just curious. You made an interesting point on, at the end there about we Jews certainly understand the idea of holding our texts as sacred, even if there are sections of it we don't hold to, you know, we don't stone people to death for violating the Sabbath um, and so on. But um, I'm just wondering if you're being um, too easy <laughs> um, on, on the Christian texts here, because yeah, you know, we have verses about homosexuality that I don't go with and other things like that I just mentioned. Um, but as you just showed, just in one of the Gospels, let alone the rest of them, 
there's a lot of specific references to Jews in very negative lights. So are, are you, I mean, but I could imagine some of my Christian friends saying, yeah, we don't take that stuff literally, or just, just refuse to Jude refers to Judeans or whatever. Um, are you, are you letting the Christians off the hook too much here? Well, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a good question. I don't think so. I mean, it's certainly my colleagues in the field think I'm being too harsh on the gospel of many of them think that I'm being too harsh on the gospel of John, um, uh, by referring to it as an, as an anti-Jewish text. I, I, I don't see it as my business to content, to condemn Christianity or to condemn Christians or to condemn even the Gospel of John. Um, I, I think that I'm more interested in, in suggesting that Christians need to wrestle with their scriptures. What, what, I, what I'm concerned about are kind of literalist or fundamentalist types of readings that feel called upon to uh, grant equal authority to each, uh, to each um, aspect of the Gospel of John or of other texts. I think de facto, everybody makes choices. We all cherry pick, you know, there are, even within a Jewish context, as, as you may know, there are Jews of one stripe or another that will accuse Jews of another stripe of cherry picking the things that they, that, that they um, adhere to most closely. But I think the point is to struggle with the scriptures and, and, and I think that historical criticism can help us with that. That both, let's say with the issue of homosexuality in Leviticus or issues of anti-Judaism in the Gospel of John, if we truly view these texts as products of their own time and place, then we can say, that's what they believed. There were reasons maybe that these views made sense to them but they don't have to be authoritative for us today. That's kind of how I see it. But I don't see um, my job as, especially, you know, as a Jewish New Testament scholar, it's really not my job to uh, condemn, or, and it's not my desire to condemn all of Christianity for uh, what is written in some of these texts. Thank you. Um, and Silver, and I think, is it Martin? Did I see your hand go up for? Uh, this, I just want to comment here. My colleague, Elizabeth uh, Schrader-Polch, said uh, in, a, in a text, uh, in the chat, that uh, she, she teaches at uh, Villanova, a Catholic institution. Uh, <laughs> maybe you want to say this yourself, Libby. <laughs> She's not letting Christians off the hook. <laughs> and I think something like five or six of my students are here as well. I'm not letting them off the hook either. <laughs> I'm very glad that they're here and that you're here as well. Thank you for coming, my students. Sorry, uh, Alex. I... Oh, that's fine. Right, so my, my question is, the um, John seems to be, I, I think John was the latest of the, um, of the Gospels. Uh, and there seems to be a level of anger in John that, that isn't present in the earlier Gospels. And I'm wondering whether or not, um, first of all, I'm wondering what was really going on during the canonization process that, that caused them to include the book of John. But beyond that, wondering whether or not they had gotten to a point where uh, the idea that they the, that Christianity would, would convert the Jews to to Christ didn't work. And now there was a level of anger because it didn't work. And that's what's coming out in, in the book of John. Okay, those are uh, interesting. Uh, it's an interesting question. And I only wish that we had the evidence that we might need to, to address it. First of all, I would say, you know, anger because we don't have the tone of voice here, we don't really, it, it's not always easy to know, you know, what the emotions are that are driving some of these comments. And um, I would also say that John is not the only text that can be read as angry. If you think, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, for example, not just the passage that I, that I read it out earlier, let his blood be on us and on our children, but Matthew 23, which is a very long diatribe against the Pharisees. 
which also seems to express a certain, I mean, you could certainly read it as expressing a certain level of, of anger. Um, you know, so John wasn't the only one um, that can be, that can be uh, interpreted that way. Now, we don't really know what was going on and what he was reacting to. I, in my talk, I mentioned this hypothesis of expulsion from the synagogue, which some people have used to explain that kind of um, the anger that seems to filter through. Um, I've suggested another explanation, which I don't know if it's historical or not. I just present it as another way of reading the gospel, also unverifiable, like the expulsion hypothesis. But if we keep in mind that by the time John was writing, there was already a very active um, mission to the Gentiles. That is, it was already pretty clear that Jews en masse were not going to go for this. Um, lots of Jews did, but many, many did not. And, um, and so increasingly, the people who were uh, attracted to this new movement were Gentiles, um, pagans, polytheists, you know. Um, and that perhaps then John does express this idea, which I think comes through in uh, chapter 12 of the gospel, that the Jews had their chance. They screwed up by not accepting this um, message. And so now uh, focuses on the Gentiles. And perhaps that might be one of the reasons that John writes the way that he does about about the Jews. But again, this is speculation. We don't we don't really know. Pretty much out of time. I just want to try to take one more question that came in in the chat um, before we wrap up. And I'm sorry if we don't get to everyone. Uh, but the question from Grayson was: Do you think Martin's theory is still relevant in that it points to the parting of the ways as the source of John's anti-Judaism, even if its root in the Birkat Haminim is unfounded? Okay, many people would say yes. Many of my colleagues would still say uh, yes. That even though Birkat Haminim is now really out of, out of the conversation, um, because there's no evidence that it existed until the third, the, 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 only, the first solid, the earliest solid evidence we have for Birkat Haminim is the third century. So it probably was not uh, in the background of these passages in the Gospel of John. But many people still uh, would agree that the Jews experienced, an, uh, the, the Johannine Christians experienced an expulsion from the synagogue, and that this was in the context of the process of separation between uh, Judaism and Christianity that we call the parting of the ways. I think that's probably an oversimplified way of thinking about the parting of the ways. It used to be that we did date the parting of the ways, the separation between Judaism and Christianity, between uh, the first and second revolts in uh, Judea. So between the, uh, the destruction of the temple, the, revol the first revolt uh, during which the temple was destroyed, and the second uh, Judean revolt being the Bar Kokhba revolt. But uh, that I think that's no longer the consensus position. The position now is that the process of parting took place over a much longer period of time, and it took different forms in different places within the Roman Empire, and that the Gospel of John probably predates that process. Now, I've argued that the Gospel of John contributed to that process. But again, that's just my way of reading the gospel. And um, I have to hold myself to the same standard as I do my colleagues and acknowledge when there isn't external evidence for some of the ideas that I have. I think we're out of time. I'm getting that message. <laughs> <laughs> we are, unfortunately. Yeah, but thank you all so much for being here. And of course, thank you to Dr. Reinhardt for your very interesting presentation. I wish we could uh, stay a little bit longer, but I posted in the chat another uh, similar sort of class that we have coming up in two weeks. So we hope you can uh, check that out and register if you're able. And um, next week, we have a nice in-person lecture if you're in the Phoenix area on Wednesday, February 7th. Uh, called Eye for an Eye for an Eye, The Poetics of Jewish Law with um, Rabbi David Kasher. So hope you can tune into that as well. And thank you all again. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org 
to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.